morning. Glad to see you guys this morning and excited about today. Um, I know that uh, so many of you are excited about summer sort of coming to an end and school getting back uh, going, especially you teachers. I know you're excited about that. I know my wife was so excited to go back to work this week, and I'm sure you are too. And so, no, we're, we're uh, glad you're here, though, and are excited uh, about what's coming up because August is when uh, typically people kind of begin to settle back in from their summer plans and trips and that kind of thing. And uh, so there's a couple of things before we jump into the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 12 today, um, talking about prayer. And, uh, and so before we jump into that, a couple of things that are coming up that are really important that I want you to know about. The first one is that we are um, going to begin creating some opportunities, more opportunities for uh, our church to pray together. Um, I feel like this is really important. It's something that's been on my heart for a while. And so what we're going to start doing, not this week, but the week of August the 5th, we're going to start offering three times for people to come to the church and pray. Um, and we're going to do that on Tuesdays and Thursdays at noon and Friday mornings at 7. And so um, for you early risers, Friday morning will be perfect. And so um, we want you to have an opportunity to come and pray. It's going to be a time where we really seek the Lord. If you uh, would like to be prayed for, there's something in your life, and uh, we can pray for you. We, we'd love for you to come to one of those times so that we can pray. Um, but I really want these times to be where we can come together. We're going to take communion. We're going to uh, seek after God together. And I believe this, that the Bible is true, that if we will humble ourselves and pray, uh, that he will hear us, that he'll heal our land, that we'll see his hand move, that we'll uh, be able to uh, fulfill God's plan and purposes on the earth. So uh, remember that August 5th, we're going to have those three opportunities, not to pray out obligation, but to come and uh, join together and uh, seek after God together. The second thing is uh, the week of weeks of August 5th, August 12th, August the 19th, and August the 26th. So that's every Sunday in August. Um, we're going to have what we call our meet and greet. It's where people can come and sign up for a small group, what we call connect groups. Um, on the 5th and 12th, there's going to be sign-ups and opportunities for you to meet the Connect Group leaders on the 5th and the 12th that are for non-college Connect Groups, okay? Um, the 19th and 26th will have opportunity for you to meet. Uh, if you are a student, you can go and meet the college leaders, um, of the people who are leading those college-age groups, and you can meet them and get signed up for a group. And so 5th and 12th are non-college. 1926 will be for college students to sign up. This is really important. God didn't create us to do life alone. He created us to do life together and to be bound together by the Spirit and to be pursuing God with people who are pursuing uh, Him as well. And so community is very important. Um, pray about that. If it's in your heart, I'd love for you to uh, get involved in one of these groups. So uh, the leaders will be out there. You'll be able to meet them. You can still sign up at a Next Steps table or online, but I uh, want to encourage you to meet some of these leaders um, in the next couple of weeks. So with that said, Acts chapter 12. Um, I want to set it up real quick. Uh, in Acts, we saw in 
on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people came to know the Lord as Peter preached boldly through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, we see where the church throughout the book of Acts is growing greatly in numbers. People are coming to know Christ. They're being saved. Um, God's doing incredible things. We're going to get here to chapter 12, and even in chapter 11, what we start to see is that the persecution that the church is going to go through begins to um, be ratcheted up. It begins to be um, to increase. And so there's more persecution that's beginning to take place. Um, that's where we're going to pick up in chapter 12 in verse 1, is some of the persecution that's taking place on the church in Jerusalem. And so we're going to read about a man named King Herod, King Herod wanted to keep the Jews pleased um, because if he could keep the Jewish people pleased, he knew there was less chance for a revolt. There was less chance for um, there to be a break in the peace, and that would make it easier for him. And so we're going to read about how Herod begins to persecute the church. And so uh, Acts chapter 12, let's read verses 1 through 17, and then we'll pray. It says in Acts 12, 1, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church who was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what, that, the, that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guard and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the door or, or at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came and answered the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. Let's pray. God, Thank you so much for, God, just who you are, that we, God, um, even though we're not like you, Lord, we're not holy, we're not righteous and perfect in our own, you made us that way through faith in Christ, and God, because of that, we can come to you, and I thank you for the 
privilege of prayer. I thank you for how prayer opens our eyes to see you, God, that we can truly be still and know that you are God. Lord, today I, I pray that we would acknowledge, recognize the presence that's with us here now, that your spirit is here, that you are among your churches, you're among this church, Lord. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and God, that we would taste once again the goodness and the grace of who you are and the power of your spirit. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would stir our hearts to go, stir our hearts to love, stir our hearts to fulfill the purposes you created us for. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this is a question that I think will be, the answer would be yes to if you're older than about seven years old. Um, but how many of you have ever experienced some type of setback in your life? Maybe you were headed in a direction and all of a sudden there was, you know, something happened and it was just like a setback. You felt like you went a little bit backwards instead of continuing to go forwards. And maybe in your mind there was any, even a, a thought of, am I going to be able to continue on? Have you ever had a feeling like that? Anybody else had a setback in your life? And I know uh, for me, those things have happened. Um, I recognize that in a lot of my life that there are challenges, there's opposition a lot of times to getting to the place that I feel like I'm supposed to go to, uh, especially in my walk with Christ because uh, I realize that so many times as I'm trying to follow Jesus, I start feeling like, man, I'm doing pretty good and then something happens, bam, you know, I lose my temper or I, I say something I shouldn't have or whatever it might be and I feel like I took two steps back instead of continuing moving forward. And, and we have those setbacks in life, some are minor, some are major. What I want you to see in the book of Acts is that Acts chapter 12 is a place where the early church, the first church, has um, some significant setbacks. The persecution of the church becomes a major setback for the church. We often think about the first church and think that it was perfect or it had perfect people or there was no struggles or strife or strain or challenges or opposition. But if we really look into the book of Acts, it records so much of the early church's existence and how it came into being. We see that there were tons of setbacks and we see that here. We see that to begin with, King Herod had arrested some people of the way, of the people who were believers or followers of Jesus. And Herod uh, isn't liking this new move of God that Jesus had begun. He didn't like it because it seems to be a threat to the peace of the area that he's ruler of. And so Herod wants to squash this movement. He wants to make sure that he pleases the Jewish people because the last thing he wants is some type of revolt, some type of uprising that breaks the peace. He wants this to be something that he can squash. And so he arrests some of the church. It even says that he kills with the sword James, the brother of John. This is James who the Bible says uh, James and John were the sons of a man named Zebedee and that he, um, they were pretty zealous guys. They were nicknamed the sons of thunder and, and they were kind of always speaking before they thought. Some of you can relate to that, right? Um, and so they were, they were that way. And this is James who ended up being murdered, being martyred because of his faith. 
And so Herod kills James. He realizes that the Jews look at this and they're like, man, that's, that, that's good. And he recognizes that they're pleased. And so he goes and seizes Peter. But I want you to think about where the church is in this. They're seeing two of their leaders. One of them now is dead. The other one is about to be dead. And this has got to be a moment of crisis for them where they realize this is a major setback. How are we going to go forward without the leaders that we've had? How are we going to keep moving? Is God going to continue to do things like he's been doing them? And when we see this, I want you to recognize that on the surface, it's Herod persecuting the church. But in this, we really see where Herod is enforcing his power. And we see that it's not just Herod against the little church. We see that it's Herod and all the powers of Rome coming against God's church. And you can see clearly this this divide of Herod's power and all of the weapons that he has at his disposal, all of the authority that he has, and the early church, and they're at odds, and there's opposition. And see, sometimes when we come to faith in Christ, when we begin to move and we begin to follow Jesus, when we begin to go and we begin to fulfill the purpose of God, we don't realize that there's going to be opposition. But any time, listen, that the church begins to go and take back from the kingdom of darkness what belongs to the kingdom of light, there's going to be opposition. And in this chapter, what we begin to see is that this is an example of the world and the world's system and the world's power, Herod's power, Herod's weapons, all of the stuff that was at his disposal to squash this little church. And then we look at the church and what do they have? One of their leaders has been murdered, martyred. One of their leaders is about to be murdered, about to be martyred. And he's in prison. And Herod is thinking, as soon as this holiday for the Jewish people is over because they didn't want to have a trial during the holiday, during the festival. He says, as soon as it's over, I'm bringing him out in front of everybody. I'm going to make a spectacle of him. I'm going to embarrass this church. I'm going to squash it right in front of them. And I'm going to show everybody my power and my might. And he's got all this authority, all this power, all that the world could offer him to squash this church that's come into existence and all of his weapons that are at his disposal. The church looks and they think, we've got one weapon. And what do they do? They begin to pray. They begin to pray. And what I want you to see is that in this life, we're going to have opposition and pursuing and fulfilling the purposes that God's given us to fill the earth with his glory. It's not going to be easy. We need to realize that we have an opponent who comes against us. We need to see that the world system is against us. We need to see that Satan himself is like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. He doesn't just dislike us a little bit. He despises us and wants nothing more than to destroy us because when he looks at us, he's reminded of what he's not. When he looks at us, even though we are sinful in ourselves, he knows that through faith in Christ, we've been made right with God. When he looks at us, it reminds him of his defeat and that he is ultimately a defeated foe. He does not just dislike us, he despises us when he looks at us. 
He wants to come against us. He wants to bring everything that is at his disposal in the world system against the church. But we can stand firm on the truth of God's word that not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church. If we will come to God, put our faith in him, trust in him, our eyes on him, we can know this, that it might not be easy. It might be tough. There might be days that I don't think I can take another step. There might be days that I want to give up as I'm trying to fulfill the purposes of God. But the good news for me is I know that greater is he who is in me than the one who's in the world and come gates of hell, come whatever may, I know I'm coming through whatever I face because God is greater. And we can see this. We can know this. But we can't do this if we're just consistently leaning into our own self-sufficiency. If we're just consistently walking in pride. If we're just consistently thinking that somehow I'm a self-made person, a self-made man, a self-made woman. There is no such thing. If we can simply recognize who he is, who we're not, but who he's made us to be. Fall on his grace and mercy, living dependently on him, consistently in awe of who he is, taking time to stop and recognize that he is God and I am not, then we can truly find the peace that he offers. We can truly find the power that he offers. We can truly find the strength that he offers, but we'll never find his strength if we're only operating and depending on our strength. We don't have to do it that way. See, that's how the world operates. The world operates from a system of, I'm going to work this out. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to create this opportunity. I'm going to kick down the door. I'm going to close the door. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And we live outside of our limitations. We live outside of where God's called us to live. We don't live in dependence on him, trusting in him, casting our cares on him because he cares for us. We don't walk in that strength. We walk in our own. Just realizing even this morning, coming out here to preach this message, like, God, I I can't do this on my own. 15 years later, 15 years of ministry, I still realize I, I can't do this. If I don't, tap into, if I don't grab hold of God, I can't do anything of eternal value, of eternal impact. We've got to understand that opposition will come. Challenges will come. Setbacks will come. But God, through his strength, is going to get me through because he's overcome. In this world, yeah, we're going to have trouble, but we can have peace. We can take heart. Because Jesus has overcome the world. One of the challenges of prayer is that we, we, we sometimes just overcomplicate it. If we're going to really look at prayer, prayer is really communicating with God. It's me talking to God, but it's also me allowing God to speak to my heart. It's me taking time, as I said, to be still and know that he is God. It's me being able to humble myself before him 
recognizing who he is. And so many times we overcomplicate it. I mean, we hear people pray these eloquent prayers and it's full of thys and these and those and thine. And we're like, I don't even know what that means. So how do I pray, you know, to him when I don't have the right words? And I don't think God is as concerned with us saying the right words as much as he is the heart of why we're coming to him. He doesn't, he knows what's in our heart. He doesn't just look at the outside of a person. He knows what's in our heart. And when we lift those up to him, it's something that is powerful, something that transforms, something that changes. I remember talking about how we complicate prayer. I remember I was about 10 or 11 years old and my family and I went on a ski trip and uh, we went to West Virginia and, and there was a restaurant that we had looked up to go eat at at this place we were staying. It was called Good Time Bobby's, all right? So how many of you would agree with me that Good Time Bobby's sounds very much like a hamburger place, maybe a sports bar, right? Not a five-star restaurant, right? This is like one of the fanciest restaurants I've ever been to. So we walk in, they finally seat us. We got a waiter there with like the towel over his arm and he's just standing there like watching us eat and stuff and made me a little nervous. But we sit down and there's like all these forks and knives and spoons and plates and saucers and all this stuff. And I'm like, how much food are we gonna eat, right? That it takes all of this. Cause this was a really fancy restaurant. I don't come from a really fancy family. And so we're, we're sitting there and, and they come and they're asking, you know, what we would like to eat. So I order a steak. I'm thinking I'm about to get a big, you know, ribeye, a big chunk of meat, right? It's about that big. And so they put it down. I'm like, what in the world? And then I looked at the dude with the towel on his arm and I'm like, hey, can I get some ketchup? And my mom's like, don't do that. I'm like, why? She's like, it's insulting to the chef. Well, I want some ketchup, Right. Just bring me some ketchup. I, if it hurts his feelings, I'm sorry, but I want some ketchup. And so when, when we were there and looking at all this, I'm like, Mom, what do I do? And she's like, start from the outside and work in. I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm picking up forks and knives and stuff and trying to eat. But at the end of it all, here's where I got to is I was hungry. So I was going to eat the steak. I don't really know if I ate with the right fork. I don't know if I ate with the right knife or the right spoon or if I'd used the right saucer or if I did the right thing and, and shouldn't have ordered ketchup. What I know is I was hungry, so I ate. I feel like it's very similar to that in our pursuit of God. If we're hungry for God, I don't think God is as concerned about the etiquette of how we come as long as we come to him with the right heart, as long as we look to him. As long as we realize who he is and we come to him in humility. There's so many mysteries about prayer. How, what's the right prayer and, and, and how does prayer work? And what I've learned is with God, when I come to things that I don't fully understand, and there's so many things because his ways are not my ways. He, his ways are much higher than mine. I, I can't lean on my own understanding, but I have to acknowledge him and trust him, and then he'll make my path straight. I can't, can't fathom who he is. And when I come to things like that in life, what I've learned to do is don't focus on the things you can't understand. Focus on the things that you know. Because we'll never fully explain God. 
And the one thing that I know about prayer, the one thing that is true about prayer is that prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. The Bible says in James that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Jesus instructs us to pray. He tells us that we should pray that God would send the harvesters into his harvest fields. We know that that Elijah prayed and it quit raining for three years and then he prayed again and it began to rain. James says he's a man just like us. We see that prayer affects things. Prayer changes things. I don't understand all the mysteries of prayer, but I know according to God's truth, what I begin to see is that prayer is powerful. Prayer changes things. The first thing I want you to see that prayer changes is my perspective. It changes my perspective. I begin to see things differently. I begin to think differently. See, what happens is I take my eyes off of little old me and I put my eyes on big old God who created everything more than we can fathom, who's greater than we could ever imagine. And I put my eyes on him. I get my eyes off of me and I realize how much bigger God is than me. I realize how much bigger God is than my circumstances. And out of that, I begin to gain a new perspective. I no longer live my life out of fear of man or what the fear of man can do to me or even what Satan can do to me because I realize how big God is. The problem for us is that we oftentimes don't put our eyes on him. We don't stop long enough to see him, to reflect on him, to think about who he is. And so all of our life is driven by experience, driven by fear, driven by worry, driven by all of these emotions and all of these things. Instead of being driven by truth but when we come to God's word and we see his promises and we see his truth then the truth we realize is greater than my experiences I begin to pray God's truth back to him I begin to claim the promises of God in my life and instead of being tossed to and fro by everything because of what I see around me and a broken perspective because of a broken world I begin to see things clearly because I see it through the lens of his truth not the lens of my experience and then I begin to find that I'm set free from so much of what held me back I'm set free to really do and fulfill the purposes of Christ I'm set free to receive his love and his grace I'm set free to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and just like Peter in Acts chapter 12 when he was bound with shackles around his feet and the chains were holding him back he was sitting there and he was in an impossible situation with a man on his left and a man on his right and two people guarding the gate when we realized this, that he was in an impossible situation that Peter could do nothing about, but they were calling on a God who's never in an impossible situation, who's never caught off guard, who's never surprised. And they lifted their eyes in expectation. They lifted their eyes to the one who could do something about it. And then God began to move and do what they couldn't do. But we, church, settle for what we can do in our own strength because we've been so so numbed by what we see in the world our expectation has just become what we see we've lost sight of the power of God we've lost sight of who he is we've lost sight that he's a personal God he created all this stuff and scientists find water on all these other planets but guess what 
There ain't nobody living there. Why? Because God didn't put us there. He put us here. He created us. He's a personal God. He loves us. He's good. He's sovereign. He's faithful. I know I can trust him and I can live my life with a different perspective, knowing that no matter what I go through or where I go, he is with me. No matter what I've done, I can come to him. No matter what I do, I can come back to him. And when I see the grace and all of God, I can't help but live for him. I can't help but give my life for him. I can't help but fall again on his grace and mercy and give myself to him fully. But we've got to stop long enough to see who he is, to realize the only way I'm truly set free is by the truth of his word, by recognizing his power, no longer living in fear and and worry of what this world can do to me, but keeping my eyes fixed on him, keeping my eyes fixed on the power of God that is still here for us today. Church, we can't settle for what we do in our strength because what we can do in our strength is nothing of eternal value. Only God can change a heart. Only God can change a life. Only God can fill us with grace and love and the power of the Spirit of God till the point that it overflows into the life of other people. And so it begins to change our perspective. I want you to look now at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. This is where Jesus begins to teach the disciples how to pray. And he gives them the model prayer we know as the Lord's Prayer. And I want to go through this and I want to look at it. I know for a lot of us, the Lord's Prayer was something we would say before a ball game or maybe we said in church. It's not intended. There's nothing wrong with quoting this prayer, obviously. But I don't believe it's intended to just be something that we just go through the motions of doing. It's a model of how we come to God. It's a model of the heart we should have. And Jesus in Matthew 6, verse 5 says this, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And some of the later manuscripts go on to say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. But I want you to see that the first thing Jesus does is he says, look, the pattern of prayer that you guys have seen, it's not the way you're going to come to God. He says, look, let's start with the hypocrites. Let's start with these people who want to stand on the street corners. They want to beat their chest. They want to say, listen to my prayers. Listen to how much I have it together. Look at my righteousness. Look, look at how, how good I do this. And, and they're doing it for show. 
The first thing Jesus says is, listen, if you're going to come to God, it's not because you've got fancy words and all the stuff in the right language. If you're going to come to God, the first thing you need to do is you need to humble yourself and you need to come to him with the right heart and not in a place where you think you're something or have done something, but recognizing that God is the one who deserves to be looked at and glorified. And so he says, don't come pridefully. Don't come exalting yourself. And here's the thing I realize is if we see God clearly, if we can recognize who he is just a little bit, what we begin to see is that there's no room for boasting. How can I be prideful when I'm seeing clearly who God is? How can I boast in myself? How can I boast in my job? How can I boast in my kids? How can I boast in my wife? How can I boast and brag and be prideful about what I've done or the kingdom I think I've built when I really look at it and see who God is, when I really see how great he is, if I begin to just fathom a little bit of who he is, how can I begin to approach God in any posture other than humility and awe and reverence for who he is? The next one he tells us is he says, don't just keep on babbling words. He's saying, look, don't just say prayers just to say prayers. It's about the sincerity of your heart. He's saying, come to me sincerely. Don't just say this and say that like it's some kind of superstitious thing. But draw near to me with a sincere heart, truly desiring me, truly humbled by me. He's saying, draw near to me. And so we see that the sincerity of heart is a posture that we come with. We see that humility is a posture that we come with. And when we see God clearly, those are aspects that come out of us when we're recognizing who he is. He says, then you should pray this way. And he says, our father in heaven. See, this is something that we look at and we don't think is that big of a deal. But back then, they didn't talk to God as a father. And so Jesus telling them this is a completely different way of looking at God, approaching God. We know that Jesus prayed to the Father this way. We know we're instructed in other places in the New Testament to pray to God this way. But we, we would have been in that day, especially in the Jewish faith, we would have realized we don't do that. It was something they didn't do, but Jesus is showing us how we can come to God in this, that we come to him out of respect and awe, but we can come to him even though when we see him, he is so much greater than we are. He's saying, listen, this is how you can approach him in me. We can come boldly before his throne of grace to receive mercy in our time of need. We can approach him in a way that's different than any other part of history because of what Jesus has done. And when we come to him, we begin to see him. He says that he's our father in heaven. I want you to see in this that it's not where, where Jesus is giving us the location of God. That's not the point. The point is not him saying our father who he's in heaven. God's everywhere, right? He's in everything, all things. And so we see that. What he wants us to see in this is his power and his authority. He wants us to see how powerful God really is. So we begin to recognize him. God, I'm coming to you through Jesus, in Jesus' name, in his person, 
through my faith in him, I'm coming to you, God. I recognize your sovereignty. I recognize your authority. I recognize your power over all things, God. And I am in awe of you. Think about this. I know I've noticed this, that as my children have gotten older, they're not as impressed with me as they used to be. And now I've become the source of a lot more jokes, right? But not long ago, my 12-year-old and my 7-year-old and I, we were in the backyard and we were playing ball. I was hitting them ground balls, hitting them fly balls. And, and so they, we were doing this and I don't know what came over me, but I challenged them. I said, here, I'll make a bet with you. I don't remember what we bet, probably something stupid. But I said, I'll make a bet with you. Bet you can't get a ball past me. Ooh, yeah, we can. All right, well, let's see. And so I, they get the bat, they get the ball. I go out there and where our yard is, we've got our, our backyard and it borders up to a, a cotton field. And so I'm out there and they start hitting them. They're hitting them as hard as they can. I don't know how, but I'm running down everything. I'm catching everything. I'm making catches. I'm running. I don't know how I didn't pull a hamstring. Could have killed myself in the cotton field. And every time I catch a ball, they were like, oh, man. They think they have one by me. Oh, man. And they were so surprised, right, that I could still do this. And, and so um, and we were, I'm out there. I'm like, I'm about to die. They're like, Dad, you all right? I'm like, yeah, hit another one. You know, my pride wouldn't let me quit. And so we get out there. But, you know, when they're little and we do things like that, they can be in awe of us. And that's just them looking at us. We're so much bigger. We can do so many more things. But how much more so our Heavenly Father, when we realize we can come to Him as a Father, but we also recognize how much bigger, how much greater, how much, how much better and right and good and perfect He is, and we come to Him recognizing His power, His sovereignty, that He's in control, that we can trust Him. Jesus then says, hallowed be your name. See, when he talks about his name, he's not just talking about like John or Mark or Luke or whoever. He's talking about his character and nature. He's saying, holy is your nature. Holy is your character. You are perfect. You are righteous. All of these things, he's recognizing who he's coming to. So I come to him as a father, but I come to him in awe because I'm seeing clearly who he is. I come to him in reverence. I come to him, but I still come to him. Recognizing this ability that I have in Christ, not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done, I can come to my heavenly father who is good, who's loving, who's kind, who's patient. Verse 10, he says, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's recognizing, God, it's your plan. See, so many times when we come to God in prayer, we're, we're really praying to try to get God to come into alignment with our will. When what we should be praying is that our hearts and mind will come in line with his will that our hearts would be to fulfill his purposes, 
his plans. And we do that because we know we can trust that God is good. God, I want your good, pleasing, perfect will in my life. God, rebuke me if I'm out of it. Then correct me and teach me and train me so that I can walk in your will. God, your will be done. See, Jesus didn't just tell us this. Jesus showed us this when he's in the garden of Gethsemane, right before he's arrested and goes to the cross. He's like, God, if there's another way, let's do that because I'm really not looking forward to what I've got to do. But God, I know there is no plan B. So your will be done. God, I know there's going to be opposition. I know there's going to be challenges. I know, God, there's going to be days when temptation seems to overwhelm me. I know, God, there's going to be days when my heart hurts. I know, God, there's going to be days when I'm wondering and in fear. But God, I pray, Lord, your will be done. God, lead me. Show me your will. Bring me in line with your good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we see the first three petitions that Jesus lays out there, the first three requests or statements that Jesus makes has to do with God and his glory, his will, his purpose. The next three, he begins to change and he begins to use the word our. In verse 11, he says, give us today our daily bread. And some people will say that bread is referring to um, some spiritual bread, like the bread of life, which Jesus is. And that's true. But I don't believe that here. I believe Jesus is teaching us that we need to look to God and be dependent on him. See, the challenge for us is this. The challenge for us is to sincerely come to God and say, God, I trust you for my provision. I recognize that I am completely dependent on you for everything I have and everything I need. It's hard for us to say, give us this day our daily bread when the pantry's full of bread. And so we get this disillusionment that somehow what I have is because of me, that what I have is because of what I've done. But I want you to remember and I want you to think about how dependent we are on God because if he didn't give us our next breath, we would all cease to exist. We are utterly dependent on God. It is not just because of of, of some scientific phenomenon that the sun rises and sets on time every day. It's because Jesus created it all and now Jesus holds it all together. If he didn't hold us together, we would not exist. If he didn't hold us together, we wouldn't have life. If he didn't step into our world that he holds together, we would have never had life, never known God. But now because of him we can know him and we can recognize how dependent we are on him how dare us think that we can do the work of God that we can live the life of God that we can give ourselves what we need control is a illusion and many of us are living disillusioned because we don't realize truly how dependent we are on God and when we can recognize our dependence on him to give us what we need then we don't have to say some shallow prayer when we say down at the table we can truly have hearts that are full of thanksgiving and praise and and, and gratitude for what he's done we quit whining about the little things in life or man I got to do this or man I got to do that praise God he gave me breath today praise God I can know him today praise God that I don't have to live in death 
Praise God I've been taken to life. Praise God he's given me a new way to see, a new way to live, a new perspective. Praise God that I'm not just dependent, but I'm dependent on one who is faithful and true and right and just and fulfills every promise, that he never leaves me nor forsakes me, and that I'm able to come to him as I would a loving father. Maybe your father wasn't loving. Maybe your father wasn't, isn't a good fixture to put your eyes on and see who God is because I'm telling you right now, God is a good, faithful, and true father that we can come to and depend on, but we've got to get away from this delusion that somehow we create everything in our lives. We can't create anything. The only thing that we can earn is death. But the gift of God through Jesus is eternal life. We see our dependence. Then Jesus says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Think about the progression of this prayer. Jesus says, he says, our father. He says, this is how we come to him. But listen, don't forget, he's in heaven. All the power of heaven, every power and principality is under his feet. There's nothing greater than him. Don't forget, he says, hallowed be your name, your character, your righteousness, your nature is perfect. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, listen, it's about fulfilling his plan and his purpose. We've got to reorient ourselves to his plan and purpose. And then he says, and don't forget, you're dependent on God for everything. Lean into him, trust him, fall on his grace and mercy. But here's the crazy thing about it. How many of us have really done that, right? None of us have done it perfect. We've all rebelled against him. We've all gone against him. And when we see him clearly, it is all inspiring. But in and of ourselves, we recognize I am doomed. It's what Isaiah says when in, in, in the book of Isaiah and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. He says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me when I see God clearly because I recognize he's holy and I'm not. He's other. I'm very different from him. But I'm able to recognize too what Jesus has done. And I'm able to turn and I'm able to come to him through Jesus, and I'm able to ask for forgiveness of my sin. I can come to this awe-inspiring yet merciful God. God, forgive me. I don't stand on the street corner. I don't sit in a chair. I don't sit in a pew. I don't stand at the door. I don't go to, to eat lunch after you know church and, and everybody gets to see me and they know I've been to church. That's not the point. The point is, Coming to him. The point is seeing his grace, seeing his mercy. I thought about this this week when people always say, you know, well, if you tell people they're just forgiven by faith, then they're just going to go out and do whatever they want to do. But I want you to think about this if you're in Christ and you've had an experience of God's grace where if you're in Christ, you have, where your sin was lifted off of you. You experienced the joy of the Spirit of God in you. You've experienced the power of God taking and realizing he took your sin. He took 
death and he gave you life. And when you think back to that moment, I think back to the moment of my salvation when I was set free from all of that. Not to become perfect, but brought to God through Christ. I want you to think back to that moment where grace, you encounter grace, his spirit, his love. There was not one part of you, there was nothing on your radar that said this, I think I'm going to take advantage of this. If he loves me like this, I can just go do whatever I want to do. I think I'm going to take advantage of this. Nobody thinks like that when they experience the grace and love of God. The only thing we can do is really say thank you. The only thing we can do is once again come to him in humility and surrender. The reason that we can begin to use grace as an excuse to go and do what we want to do is because we're really not experiencing grace. We're really not experiencing God. What we're doing is looking to God and we're rationalizing what we really want to do. When we truly realize and we truly come to faith and we truly repent of our sin, it leaves us once again in amazement of God. Once again, humbled by who he is and what he's done. And then he goes on and he says, and forgive us. He says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Think about this. And Jesus even says, if you are going to be forgiven, you need to forgive. I think those two things are tied together. Because when we really look at the grace and forgiveness that Jesus has given us, we really see the gap that he's bridged, all that he's forgiven, all that he's, he's taken from us. How can we withhold that from someone else? And see, here's the challenge in that. We, we've been hurt. Listen, I've been hurt by people. I've been hurt by people in ministry. I've had bad church experiences that not only almost took me out of ministry, but almost took me out of life. I've had people hurt my family in ways that, that are unrecoverable. And I know, listen, I'm not saying woe is me. I'm telling you, your story is probably worse than mine. All I can do is look at my story. And I know this with the things and the people and the, the situations that have hurt me. That in me and in my flesh, in who Brandon is on his own, there is nothing in me that wants to forgive. There is nothing in me because what's in my heart is I want to hurt them. What's in my heart is I want God to hurt them. What's in my heart is I like to kill them. What's in my heart is I hope God kills them. What's in my heart is not good. What's in my heart is evil. And in me, I can't forgive them. But when I look at this, what's in my heart isn't binding them up. It's binding me up. They're not the one in prison. I think that somehow I'm holding them captive when I'm the one in captivity. It's, it's, it's realizing that I'm doing this to hurt them, but I'm hurting me. And I have to see the grace of God. And again, I come back to my dependence on him because in me, I can do nothing but through him I, I can do all things even forgiving that guy even forgiving her 
forgiving them. Through the Spirit, through His strength. Listen, not on my own, but with my eyes on Him, with His Spirit in me, with His truth on my lips, I can realize that I can let this go. This doesn't have to rob me anymore. I can trust God to do justice. I'm not the one who has to do the justice. I'm not the one who has to hurt them and punish them. I can let that go and I can be set free. I can trust God with this. And I can forgive. Bitterness, unforgiveness is one of the biggest tools that Satan uses to rob God's people of the life that God gives them in Christ. Where you don't have the strength, God is strong. Don't lean into your flesh. Let God give you a new perspective. Let God heal what's hurt. Let God mend what's broken. The last thing he says is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I believe in this, Jesus is saying, Lord, don't, Father, don't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, Lord. Lord, give us the strength. Let us be dependent on you. God, let us remember that you've overcome the evil one. Let us remember the truth. God, to keep our eyes fixed on you that we can walk in your will. Keep our eyes fixed on you that we can have your heart, your mind, that we can live our lives in all of you. That we can just be still and gain a new perspective. You know, Jesus teaches them to pray right there. He, the longest prayer we see that Jesus prays is in John 17. Most of that prayer is a prayer for unity in the church. And we look at that and sometimes we wrestle with why are prayers not answered? And when I look at John 17, it could be easy to look at it and say, well, did the Father even answer the prayer of Jesus himself? Because last I checked, there were like 930-something separate, distinct denominations or sects of Christianity. And when I look at that, it makes me realize how for short the church has come because we fight and squabble over little things we die on hills we shouldn't die on when the main thing if we keep it the main thing it, we would be united if we could be loved we would share love together and the world would truly see that we are his disciples see I don't believe that the issue exists of division in the church because of Jesus, because of the Father, because of the Spirit. I believe the division exists in the church. Satan, the evil one, is having a heyday with us. Not because 
of God, but because of our hearts. And I believe this, that God is calling us to humble ourselves. God is calling us to pray. See, if we can see how big God is, these things that seem like chasms that that, that divide us, we realize those things are tiny. They're not even worth fighting for. If Jesus can bridge the gap between me and him, how can I let that separate me from my brother or sister in Christ? My prayer this morning, and I want us to pray, is for unity. That we'd have one heart, that we'd be a praying church, that we'd be unified, not coming in with our own agenda, our own wants, our own things, but that we would humble ourselves in view and sight of God. That we would come to Him and pray. Allow Him to align us with His heart and will. That he would unify us as a body under the headship of Christ. One purpose, to glorify God in all the earth. To walk in his love, sharing that love with the world. That God is glorified. So this morning, what I want to do, and this is just what's been on my heart this morning, is I'm going to ask you today. I want us to pray together. But I want us to do this and a little bit different way. If today your heart is, God, use us, unify us, God, help us to see you, help the world to see you, then I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna ask you that you would get up and you come down here and we're gonna pray together. I'm gonna ask you that you get out of your seat, you walk down here and we, as the body of Christ, not scattered throughout an auditorium, but one body standing here today, we are going to pray together and seek the Lord call on his name so if that's your heart let's pray walking down here or as you're kneeling whatever I just want you to take a second I want you to look around I want you to see the people I want you to recognize that this is the church it's not a building or seats this is the church I want you to see how different we all are and when I look at each one of you I, I see people who are so different Nobody looks the same. I mean, you're, you all have some characteristic, something that's very different. And yet, too, I look at you and I see the face of Christ. Listen, this is the church. And together we can draw near to God. I want you to understand that if we are in Christ, there is more that unites us than what divides us. And what unites us is greater than anything that could stand between us. This is the church.
Father, thank you so much that we can come to you, God, that we can call on your name. God, I do pray that you would unify us. Let us see you more clearly. God, in our days, let us stop long enough to be still and to recognize that you are God. To trust you with all that goes on around us, to have a different perspective from the world, that our minds would be renewed, that we would see differently, that we wouldn't conform to the pattern of what this world says and does, but God, that we would recognize your way and your plan of reconciliation. We would walk in that plan. We would share that plan. God, that you would truly be our life that we would realize we can't sustain anything. We would fall again on your mercy and your grace. We would love you, God, because you've loved us in such an amazing way. Let us lift up our eyes above the noise and confusion to see you. God, there's so many troubles and challenges and opposition that's represented here right now together. But God, I know you're greater. And God, I'm thankful that we can rest in that. God, when we feel we can't stand, I'm thankful we can stand in you, Lord. God, let us not lean on our own understanding. Let us not trust in our own strength. Lest we grow weary, God, but let us rest in you. Before I let you go, I want to ask if you're here, you don't know Christ, you've never come to faith, but today you say, yeah, I, I want to say yes to Jesus. I want to come to faith and cry. I want to accept the forgiveness of God. I want a relationship with him. I see that he's drawing me to himself and I need him. Because you've never put your faith, you've never walked with him before. Never had a relationship, but today you say, That's where I'm at. God's drawing me. I'm going to ask you right now, would you raise your hand and say, that's me. Today, I need Christ. For the first time, I'm going to trust in Him. You raise your hand high so we can see. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? David, would you come pray with him? I want to pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you so much for, again, what you do, who you are. God, we lean into you and your power and the spirit of who you are, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the power of the spirit. Thank you that you met us here again today in faithfulness. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Y'all have a good week. Let's be the church.